Lord, let us see you. Let us know you. Let us hear you. Rekindle our hearts with love for you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If I were to ask you, what is the one thing that would solve all your problems, what would you say? What would it be? What is the one thing that would solve your problems? The single most important thing that will impact everything else. You know what it is? It's your heart. Do you treasure heavenly things or earthly things? Do you treasure the stable and the lasting things? Or do you treasure the unstable and the temporary things? If your heart is in its proper place, then everything else will be also. This is the subject of our gospel passage. It's a fundamental matter. We cannot afford to overlook this important, fundamental point. So I invite you to open up your Bibles or your orders of service. Turn to the gospel passage. Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 40. The context is this. Our passage is situated in the context that has been termed the travel narrative. It's about Christ and his disciples traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem where Christ will be crucified. This is the portion of Luke from chapter 9 to chapter 19. Here we find Christ speaking in a way that is different than other gospels. We find him not preaching or proclaiming or even teaching didactically, but telling stories. Christ's words are conversational, seemingly simple, and strangely powerful. And he does this on the way. Perhaps there's a lesson to be gleaned both for us personally and as we travel about and interact with others. And I submit that the lesson is more than just the manner for which we speak but the condition of those for whom Christ speaks to, the condition of our heart. Storytelling, after all, has this uncanny ability of exposing the heart, doesn't it? And here Christ exposes that the human heart is gripped with what? Fear, anxiety, worry. When we treasure that which is unstable and not lasting, we will always be gripped with anxiety. And this is the impetus, the force for this passage. It's the very first words that Christ says, fear not. Christ tells us not to fear and worry. And then he shows us why this is so and how we need to change. Unfortunately, I know it too well. I know anxiety too well, I must confess. I've lived with it. And I say this humbly, but I think it's no coincidence that on my very first Sunday at All Saints, that this is the passage that comes to the fore. And I'm confident that many of you also have 
unfortunately live with anxiety and worry. Not only deteriorating your body physically, but also your soul spiritually. Our Lord has a word for us this morning. And so what are the lessons that we ought to garner from this gospel-saturated passage? The first lesson concerns what we know. Do we know our own hearts? Do we know his heart? Look with me at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Our Lord goes to great lengths to pack in this single verse profound meaning. Why? Because he wants his followers to know that he knows them. He tends to them. And he prospers them. Consider with me how he knew the hearts of his disciples. He was not ignorant of what vexed them or oblivious of what caused or would cause them to stumble. He knew the bad and the ugly of them. And it was fear, anxiety, and worry. Yet Christ says, fear not. And this is not the only time he says this. In fact, this is the fourth time that Christ confronts this very topic in this chapter. This is a point to be emphasized. We live with anxiety and worry, and Christ knows it. And he says not to fear. Christ not only knew how ready they were to be filled with fear, but shows how ready and persistent he is to console and to comfort them to fear not. Christ knew them, and Christ knows his flock. Now notice how Jesus describes his disciples. He calls them little flock, doesn't he? This phrase, little flock, speaks to the size, the stature, and the seat for where they reside in God's heart. They are beloved objects of endearment. Christ knew that they were little. He knew that they would remain little throughout the centuries. They are few. Feeble and precious to him. This is what the church is. This is what the followers of Christ are. There are countless unbelievers. There are many hypocrites. But only a few committed followers of Christ who rest in their Lord. Years ago, I visited Ephesus and I saw the ruins of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Artemis. I saw only the foundation, and yet it rose to great heights. I could not help but to think of how imposing and threatening this structure must have been to the early Christians. There's countless issues that threaten our hearts, aren't there? There's countless matters that deceive us to fear and to worry. We must examine our hearts. Let us make every effort to know ourselves so that we may know not only the one who treasures us, but the most worthy one to be treasured. We would do well to remember the great Swiss reformer, John Calvin, who says at the beginning of his Institutes of Christian Religion, his magnus opus, 
He says this, without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Let us examine ourselves. Children of God, you may be few. You may be fumbling about as children do. You may be unimposing and even appear weak to others. But Christ, if he Christ is your shepherd. Then you are secure. You have no reason to fear. He knows and he says, be not anxious. You are mine. Christ knew that this world has much to fear. Fear of acceptance, success, and significance. And that his disciples would be mocked and ridiculed and marginalized. But like their master, though despised and rejected, they are secure. But he also knew that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I remember going through a season of depression and speaking to a close friend about it. And he said this. He said, Kalen, you know what you need? I said, what? He said, you need a good George MacDonald book. (laughs) And then he proceeded to qualify his statement by explaining that what I truly needed was the eternal and eternal perspective. You see, George MacDonald was a Scottish pastor who wrote fantasy novels. And oftentimes it was laced with Christian themes. And he was a greatly influential man. In fact, C.S. Lewis, nearly everything C.S. Lewis writes, he in some capacity he refers to George MacDonald, or at least one of his, one of his writings. An eternal perspective. That's what we need. That's what the saints of old held on to so tightly. I know Father Brad was a uh, big fan of Richard Baxter. This is what I've learned. Richard Baxter wrote this this incredible book. It's called Saints Everlasting Rest. It's a book that I pick up every year and I read. How important it is to cling to that heavenly vision. Comforts our soul. It encourages our heart. See, the message is clear. Christ knows his followers, and despite how small and feeble they are, he loves them, tends to them, and ensures that they are more than conquerors. Remember that heavenly vision. Now look again with me at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Do you know in your heart of hearts, child of God, that you are possessed by the father? Listen to the possessive language. It is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Not only are you his flock and he is your shepherd, but he is your father and his kingdom is your kingdom. Why? Because he does not receive you grudgingly or unwillingly, but with good pleasure to give you his kingdom. The father finds joy in those who are members of. Of his flock, the flock of Christ. He sees you not as flawed sinners, but as righteous children. So may we grasp that we are eternally valued by our heavenly father. Child of God, know that he is pleased with you and will welcome you with exceeding joy. And if you do not know the father's love, 
I invite you, you to pray that you might know it, that you might know him. Don't hesitate to come and to speak to me or any of the clergy so that we might help you in discovering this joy of being a blessed child of God. There is exceeding value in resting in the fact of our, that our Heavenly Father treasures us because of the work of Christ. When we know this, we will inevitably treasure Him. We must know Him to treasure Him. We will place our trust in our Heavenly Father and we will please Him. And this is faith. This is what we heard in the epistle reading. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, because of this great work of God for and in us, Christ is now our identity. What a joy that is. We are not our own identity. Christ is our identity, not our profession or popularity or the amount we are paid, but Christ. May all saints not so much be seen as a beautiful 16th century church off Galloway, but as the beautiful people of God who know and show their father's joy in receiving his flock. May we be that. So I ask, are we constrained by fear or by love? If by his love, then we need not to be afraid. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The second lesson concerns what we treasure. The first concerns what we know. The second concerns what we treasure. Now look at verses 33 and 34. We're told to sell our possessions and to give to the needy. To provide ourselves with wallets or purses or safes that do not grow old, but to store up our treasures in heaven so that our treasure may last. And then Christ gives us this profoundly evocative principle. This heart-searching principle. He says... For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Christ's exhortation appears extreme, doesn't it? But it's unmistakably clear and it's logically sound. We are to give generously and liberally so that we may treasure that which should be treasured and give up that which should not be treasured. We are to sell and give up anything that keeps us from cherishing and enjoying our union with God. This is nothing small from clinging to the trustworthiness of the promises of God. And by so doing, we guard ourselves, which is a point that he makes in the parable. We are to be on guard. We guard ourselves from error. With a faith that is in action, waiting and watching and welcoming our Lord's return. 
Though this passage emerged because of the anxiety and the worry that is in our hearts, it has now turned to a wholly different matter, hasn't it? It's turned to faith. It's about believing and trusting in Christ. It's not about living in fear and wallowing in our anxieties. It's about being accounted righteous like Abraham. Who believed the blessed promise of Christ. It's about receiving our accommodation like the people of old because of their faith in Christ, like the epistle says. We've turned from thinking of ourselves, you see, to thinking of God, his him, his glorious gift. That's what he is. And this is why we are to give generously, liberally and gratefully, because great is our reward in heaven. If we wish to profit an eternal reward, then our treasures must be in heaven. We must give up everything for Christ's sake. It may not win our salvation, but it will certainly assist in revealing it to us. When we practice giving and giving up gratefully. We are assured in the faith how encouraging it is to know the great reward that awaits us. So we must put off and reject passivity and practice generosity on all accounts, whether in word or deed. Not being judgmental. Not sitting there and having that person figured out. But let us be generous and liberal and loving because we have been loved by the Heavenly Father. This is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must take up our crosses and follow our Lord. The great 19th century bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, said, We carry our crosses in this world to carry life everlasting in the next. How else can we live with the cross, with our crosses on our shoulders, unless we are filled with gratitude of his great work? And this reward for which we treasure is not fleeting, is it? Or unpredictable. It is stable, enduring, unchanging. How do we do this? We do it by shifting from being man-centered to being God-centered. And this is why the gospel is so important. It's not only for those who do not know Christ yet. It is important for those who do know him. The gospel reveals God and his glorious character and how much we are in need of it daily and hourly. When God is front and center in our lives, our hearts are drained from fear, worry and anxiety and are filled with faith, hope and love. We are able to give up and we are able to give because our hearts are full to do so. And so I ask you to examine your heart this morning. Learn what is in them. Are you treasuring all the wrong things? It may be, may be something evidently destructive. Or it might be something 
that points to something else other than Christ. Maybe it's even a gift that God has given you. Maybe it's a ritual or a custom that we practice that points to Christ. But that is only a vehicle. That is only an instrument. It's not the destination. You see, even gifts of God can be objects of idolatry. We learn this from the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, don't we? Isaac was a gift from God that became too adored. So God had to test Abraham. So what are you treasuring? You will treasure something. Will it last or will it leave you empty handed? May we remember those profound words of Augustine at the beginning of his autobiography. Our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. You see, we were created to love God and enjoy him forever. So examine your heart. Is your heart longing for the Lord? Do you know him? Do you know that he tends to you? Do you know that he prospers you? Is the good news of Jesus Christ ever before you? Are you filled and full of thanksgiving? And the final lesson, the final point concerns this. What we ought to be like. Jesus gives us a story, doesn't he? He tells us a story and shows us what we must do. We must be like men, he says, who are waiting for their master to come home. We must be like servants who do not retire to their quarters, but stay dressed for action and keep their lamps burning. Here we see most vividly how our passage concerns the subject of faith. For it takes faith to work diligently, doesn't it? Even when the boss is not in the office, right? It takes faith not only to serve his intent, but also to be found working when she returns. You see how we must believe that we belong? How much more important it is to believe that we belong to our Lord and our Master. Our eternal Lord and Master. So we must stay awake. We must remain diligent. We must be ready to welcome Him upon His return. We must be careful not to be found asleep or idle when He returns. And we must be on guard that we stay awake waiting and watching so that we may welcome our Master upon His return. Now, while it is demanding to be a servant of Christ, and this is what we are being called to do, is to be servants, just like this parable describes, servants. And it is demanding to be a servant of Christ. But it should not give us fear. It should not foster anxiety. If that is the case, then you're not seeing him. You're not seeing the the all-knowing and the tender-loving and the prospering Heavenly Father. And also remember, Christ gives us no extraordinary task, does he? These are ordinary 
These are things that any person who is filled with love willingly and gladly does. I'm reminded of Thomas Cramner when he penned the Book of Common Prayer. He did not have the fear of man in mind, but the love of God in mind. This is one of the distinctives. There are countless references that prove this point. Not the least the comfortable words, which you will hear later in the service. These words are not intended to pander our anxieties. These words are intended to strengthen believers with the assurance of what? Forgiveness. This is his character for us, is to forgive us. He's not the God that comes in judgment, but the God that comes in forgiveness. Yes, he will be a God who judges. And we hear this in this in this parable, don't we? He will return and make all things right. But how important it is for us to remember our Lord's character. How important it is for us to remember that he has gone to a place to prepare for us. He intercedes on our behalf even now. How important is it to remember that he calls us to do nothing more than we can? He is loving. There's much to do, but such a privilege it is to live for his name's sake. Do you remember your story? Do you feel the love of God inside your heart? Do you cherish and treasure him? You see, there's no other way to remain dressed for action. We must treasure him if we are to be people of faith, active, on the move. So you might ask, how do I do this? And my answer to you are these questions. Do you see him? Do you hear him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you living for him? And are you longing for his return? When Christ returns, these questions will be unequivocally answered. Everyone will be found out. So let us not wait for that day and be found out. Let us find out today. Let us learn what is in our hearts today. Let us make every effort to receive the glorious gospel of Christ. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, let us live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.